Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word which we, you have given us. We pray for the Holy Spirit to move in us this morning so that we follow Jesus, we love him evermore. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a question I'm not asking for answers, but here's a question. How do you measure the success of a church? Just think about that a little bit. How do you measure the success of a church? I guarantee you one of the measures that is used most in a church is how many people attend on a Sunday, right? That probably came to mind. We're being a more successful church because more people are here, right? And we go, yay! And by the way, that's a good thing, right? I don't want to discount that at all. As a matter of fact, if you say you're a follower of Jesus and are not part of a local church and engaged in that church, I would say you don't understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But... Is attendance in church the be-all and end-all? Yeah, it's no. But most churches, it is the be-all and end-all. There was one church in America, and still exists today, that I want to talk about. It's Willow Creek. Anybody heard of Willow Creek before? A few? Uh, It was at one time in 2015, it was the fifth largest church in America and had attendance of over 25,000 people each week. They had multiple campuses, but they did the televideo, so forth, and they were doing that. But 25,000 people. As a matter of fact, in its heyday, from the early mid-90s up into certainly the mid or later 2000s here, it was the church you wanted to most be like. They had it. They had uh, events, they had conferences, people flocked to them, they had this huge whole whole network. But they shouldn't have flocked to Willow Creek. They shouldn't have tried to model what Willow Creek was doing. And the reason is this. In the, around 2004 to 2007, Willow Creek did a very, very thorough survey of its members. And it was a big enough uh, group. I mean, it was in the thousands, and it was a scientifically, scientific-based survey. And they found that although people were coming, they were not growing as followers of Jesus Christ. You could say a mile wide and an inch deep. And this was because it was based on what's called the seeker-sensitive movement. A seeker-sensitive church basically lowers the bar. And everybody comes because it's fun, but they don't grow as followers of Jesus. They are more like fair-weather fans rather than disciples. But Jesus did not lower the bar. As a matter of fact, he raised the bar for what it means to be a follower, what it means to be a disciple of his. And it looked unreasonable. I mean, he was not, he did not have a seeker sensitive approach. And what he asked was often off putting, it was unreasonable. And we covered that last week. Jesus calls sinners 
unlikely people in unlikely circumstances, and it was unreasonable. And really, when you take a look at what he said, it could be off-putting because he's asking for a commitment to discipleship. Jesus wants commitment to being his disciple. So this morning, well, last week, we actually covered the call of disciples, right? This week, we're going to talk about the commitment of disciples. And why were we doing this? Because his ministry was based on his preaching, his teaching, and making disciples. So we're going to take a look at three types of followers that he had. The over-eager disciple, the reluctant disciple, and the someday disciple. So as we go through here, you can ask yourself, hmm, have I been that? Am I being like that? So we're going to start with the over-eager disciple. Matthew chapter 18, starting with verse, Matthew chapter 8, starting with verse 18. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And the scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, this actually reminded me of a song, almost 60 years old. It was in 1963 that a 15-year-old young lady, little Peggy March, made a very popular song. Do you remember what that song is? I will follow him. Yes, indeed. I will follow him. And then it became repopularized because of the movie Sister Act. And it was recontextualized into following Jesus. So that's how they sang the song. So here are some verses. I'm not singing. I know Regina's singing in her mind already. I will follow him wherever he may go. You you can hear the tune, right? (laughs) There isn't an ocean too deep, a mountain so high it can keep me away. I must follow him ever since he touched my hand. I knew that near him I always must be, and nothing can keep him from me. He is my destiny. Isn't that? I mean, it's a song. It's a puppy love song, isn't it? It's a puppy, but it's that enthusiastic love song. But it seems to be taken almost directly from our reading today. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. I mean, doesn't that sound just like the song, right? I, I mean, if you, if you think about it, you can almost hear them say this. There isn't an ocean too deep, a mountain so high, it can keep me away. Jesus is my destiny. It's that love, that young, fresh love. But the question is, will young, enthusiastic love sustain the call of discipleship? I mean, for those of you who have been married for a long time, You know that that young love kind of wears off, right? It doesn't sustain the relationship. And the same is with our following Jesus. I mean, in the beginning, we're like, whoa, let's follow Jesus. Yes, right? So what's even more astounding about this account in Matthew and also in Luke, by the way, we're going to do a little bit of Luke later on is that it is a scribe who's saying, I will follow you. This is astounding because scribes did not like Jesus. They knew the Old Testament, and he seemed to be breaking all of the rules that they had. To say that they despised him 
would be an understatement. So that a scribe was eager to follow Jesus would be amazing. Now, Jesus did not do a seeker-sensitive approach, did he? He didn't say, oh, that's wonderful, come on, just follow me, it'll be, everything will be fine, we'll work it all out. I mean, that's what you hear nowadays in most churches. What did Jesus do? Well, he looked into the heart of the scribe, and he said this, foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So what do foxes and birds have? They have homes. They have a place to go at night. They have a place to go when it's dark, when it's a little scary, when you're tired, when you're weary, when you need to be just by yourself, where you can find comfort, the comfort of home. But Jesus is saying there's no place to retreat There's no home to go to. There's no home here on earth where you're going to find that true comfort if you follow me. Jesus was saying his true home was the kingdom of heaven. His true home is with the Father in heaven. Here on earth, it's ministry. It's a mission field. It's time to proclaim the good news. You see, our true home as followers of Jesus is with Jesus. The world is not our home. It is the ministry and mission field. Kent Hughes put it this way. Jesus was saying that if you walk with him, you will sense that the world is not your home. There will be a dissonance, discomfort, unease, and rejection. He was saying that to follow him, one must embrace a life of discomfort. You see, we have made the comfort of Christ into a religion of comfortableness. What is the comfort of Christ that I speak of? The comfort of Christ is this, that though we are great sinners, his love is greater that we have received mercy from him and we have received grace from him and we are free from the bondage of sin. And this is a great and eternal comfort that we have. And we have that comfort no matter the circumstances, no matter the situation No matter what the material things might be, we have great, great eternal comfort. But many churches in America and throughout the world have exchanged the great comfort of Jesus for comfortableness and have made comfortableness the measure of our faith. You know, our mission statement here is to grow alive, to grow deep, to grow bold in the love and knowledge of Jesus. What's the verb in all of that? Grow. And to grow is to change. And it's not to feel comfortable. When you ask people, how are you doing in your faith? And they say, I'm comfortable, I'm good as is. 
I'm thinking, hmm, are you following Jesus? I got to tell you as a pastor, (laughs) I'm really uncomfortable most of the time. Maybe I put on a good face or something, but man, I'm growing like I've never grown before each and every day. To be a disciple of Jesus is to embrace a life of discomfort. Think of the life that Jesus had. He was rejected over and over again. People ran him out of town, wanted to throw him over a cliff, begged him to leave after he had performed a miracle. And later, the crowds turned on him and they yelled, crucify him, crucify him. And even on the cross, the father's turning his face away. And Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, people say, I want to be just like Jesus. Really? Really? Are you sure about that? Are you willing to suffer? Are you willing to rejoice in the suffering you have for Christ Jesus? This is the commitment that he calls to. And our reading from Philippians, uh, I'm sorry, from Romans. Listen to what uh, Paul wrote in Romans here. Romans chapter 5, verse, starting verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has has been given to us. Paul led a life of discomfort and yet he rejoiced in his suffering. So we have an overeager disciple. We have a reluctant disciple. And another of the disciples said to him, Lord, Let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. This seems really harsh, doesn't it? This would be one of those things we would want to avoid in our reading of Scripture. We'd rather ignore it. But it's there. And so we can't ignore it. And Jesus didn't say this just a casual follower a fair-weather fan, he said it to a disciple. He doesn't respond with, you know what, I'm really sorry to hear about your father. Yeah, just go take whatever time you need. He actually starts with a command, follow me. And as we covered last week, that command means follow me now, not later, and continue to follow me. And then he says this. He says, leave the dead to bury their own dead. Can you imagine if I said that to you? You would leave this church so fast or try to get me fired so fast, wouldn't you? I mean, really? Seriously? How could you be so uncompassionate? Insensitive. We'll go with that. I think I was making up a word. But you would, right? This is harsh. And yet this is what Jesus said. So how are we to understand this? Especially if there's a command to honor your mother and father. Shouldn't you honor honor them also in their death? So how are we to understand what Jesus said? 
Well, plainly, if somebody is physically dead, they can't bury somebody else. Therefore, what he must be talking about is somebody who is spiritually dead. And you could talk about it this way. Let the spiritually dead bury those who are spiritually and physically dead. I mean, that still sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? But let's examine it further. Once a person who is is spiritually dead, they reject Jesus as Lord and Savior. And they physically die. Is there anything you can do about their about the judgment. You can't, can you? There's nothing you can do about the judgment. Can you mourn for them? Sure. But the judgment is damnation for those who reject Jesus Christ, and it is eternal. To die without Jesus is to have a death of eternal damnation. But that's not the desire Listen clearly. That is not the desire of God. That is not the desire of Jesus. He desires everyone to be saved, to have everlasting life with him. Therefore, in Luke's account, Luke adds this, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Bring the good news that brings the dead back to life. Let that be your priority. Let that be your urgency. The kingdom of God is more important than family obligations. This is what Jesus is saying. Come, follow me now. The kingdom of God is more important than even family obligations. You see, Jesus calls his disciples to have a radical reprioritization of their lives. See, are you willing to reprioritize your life for Christ Jesus? So you can hear that question two different ways, by the way. The question is, are you willing to reprioritize your life for Christ Jesus? You can hear that lesson as law. I must reprioritize my life so I can be a good follower of Christ. And I am going to do it because that's what I got to do. And I'm not going to be happy about it. And eventually I'm going to become bitter and burn out and just leave the church and leave the faith. Right? That's what happens. I must. The other way to hear this is about the love. Why do I reprioritize my life? Because of the gospel. I'm compelled by the love of Christ Jesus. It moves me makes me want to live for him. You see, we don't reprioritize our lives because we must. We reprioritize our lives because we love. And that's the emphasis. That is the emphasis here at this church. We do everything for the sake of the gospel because of the great love of Christ Jesus for us. And we love him back. And so we reprioritize our lives. And that means that some things don't get done because we are doing other things for Christ Jesus. So there's the over-eager disciple, there's a reluctant disciple, and then there's the someday disciple. 
And now we're going to go to our reading from Luke. So this is from the Gospel of Luke, and I want to make sure I'm getting the right chapter for you. I know it's up there on your sermon notes, but Luke chapter 9. I'm starting with verse 61. Oh, I could have just read the screen, huh? Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at home. Now, I've noticed for myself personally, if I'm giving something to do and it's a priority, I can easily get distracted. Do you ever see the movie Up? Squirrel! Oh, you know, like a dog. Oh, something else to do. Do you remember Family Circus? Right? Little Billy? Mom says, quick, Billy, run these to the mailbox. They need to be out sent today. And there's the path that Billy takes. And too late, Mommy, we just missed him. I mean, there's a lot. You, you have this experience as well, don't you? There, there's a lot of times we say, I should do this. And then all of a sudden, I'm doing something else that takes my priority. And many people will say this, oh yeah, I'll go to church eventually. You know, I'll, I'll start reading the Bible maybe sometime and, you know, following Jesus as I can. But, you know, I've I got a busy life. I understand. There's a football game next week. Do you know how many people are going to reprioritize their lives for a football game but will not do that for Christ Jesus? Right? By the way, that's why we will never, as long as I'm here, we will never show a football game on these screens, (laughs) ever. See, one day fills up, and then the week goes by, and I don't know about you, but all of a sudden, years have gone by, right? And as you get older, you know that, that all of a sudden, decade has gone by, and you think, where did that go? So, you know what? There's always going to be one more thing that keeps us in the someday mode for following Jesus. Now, with the disciple that Jesus was talking about, it probably meant going back and actually staying several months. It wasn't just like a day trip. It would have been probably months. So this is what Jesus says. He says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus answered with a proverb that everybody would have known. Anyone who plows a field know you can't do it by looking backwards. If you try to plow a field looking backwards, even on a tractor, the rows, they're just going to be everywhere. You have to continually look forward, to face forward. Now, this might be an allusion, by the way, to our reading for 1 Kings, and that's why I have it today. Elijah and Elisha. Now, it's true that Elisha did go back and say goodbye to his parents, but when you study the text, what did he also do? He burned the plow. When he burned the plow, it was a way of saying goodbye forever. There was no turning back. So with that in mind, hear this again. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. In following Jesus, there is no more someday. The day is now. You can't say that I want to live for the world and live for Jesus. He says, 
You've got to make a choice. To live for the world is to look backwards. To live for Jesus is looking forward. And that's why the song, I Surrender All, is beautiful for today. The song that we also had last week was wonderful. I have decided to follow Jesus. I'm going to read some of those words, the verses again. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. The world behind me, the cross before me. No turning back, no turning back. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back, no turning back. My cross I'll carry till I see Jesus. Will you decide now to follow Jesus? No turning back, no turning back. This is the same sentiment that Paul wrote about from jail. In Philippians chapter 3, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. And then he says this, let those who are mature think this way. So those who are disciples, who are maturing in Christ Jesus, press onward, press onward. So we've had three examples, right? The overly eager disciple, the reluctant disciple, the someday disciple. My guess is at some point, at one time, we have been or are one of these. Following Jesus is a commitment. It's a commitment to follow him no matter what. And it will not look reasonable in the worldly sense. Let me repeat that. It will not look reasonable in the worldly sense. You're going to have to reprioritize your life. Does that mean you have to go in full-time ministry? No. It doesn't mean that. And I've said that from the beginning. But it says that you are in ministry. Where you are, you are planted for ministry. And ultimately, the call to disciple to uh, the call to discipleship is ultimately one of love. It's love that compels us. And you can't be a disciple, a follower of Jesus without love. If you lack love, you lack it all. So that's why we grow in the love and knowledge of Jesus. Not just knowledge, but the love of Jesus. Of him who died for us. And when that permeates your heart, you hear the call evermore, follow me. Be my disciples. So today, we raise the bar because Christ did. Follow me, he said, be his disciple. And you yourself are going to have to answer, what say you? Amen.